All right, well, hello, everyone. And uh, what a beautiful stage we've got here and a beautiful venue. So thanks to the Web Summit team. Wesley, great to be here with you. It's exciting to be here. Well, my, my first question, because I know the topic today is technically something about being a global VC in a remote world. So let's start there and then kind of see where the conversation goes. You've been a global VC for quite a while now, and I'm thinking specifically of Canva, which is a name a lot of folks will know. Can you tell the story of how you came to be an early investor there? Yeah, Canva is an amazing company. Uh, Mel and Cliff are two of the most uh, just sort of thoughtful and wise founders I've ever had the opportunity to work with. But it was completely non-obvious when uh, I, along with my team at Felisa, led the Series A. And it's one of those things where when we led the Series A uh, and we showed up at their office, there was an introduction uh, from uh, the CEO of CultureAmp, who I had uh, joined the board of in Melbourne. And he said, you got to meet these two founders, Cliff and Mel. They're amazing. They're starting this design company that uh, no one really knows about right now, but uh, you should see them. So I got this introduction um, from Didier at CultureAmp. And uh, we had a board meeting in Melbourne, and I was on my way back to Sydney because you can't connect directly to San Francisco from Melbourne. And I, I, you know, I set up a time with Cliff and Mel and they're like, come by the office. We've got this fun little place. Come see us. And so I had this half hour of coffee booked with them at their office en route to the airport. I literally brought my bags with me and wheeled it into the, uh, into the office. And you know, Cliff and Mel come down. I don't, I don't think either of them were wearing shoes at this point. And they had all these engineers running around also without shoes. I'm like, I'm at a strange barefoot place. Like they just had come back from the beach. And uh, they, they went on to describe Canva to me. It was absolutely the most incredible thing. Mel said, I'm gonna change the world of design. There's a hundred different tools that you need when you wanna go make business cards, PowerPoint decks. Like you have to learn Photoshop, you have to learn this printing tool, you have to learn Microsoft Office. And she said, I'm gonna combine them all into one tool. And uh, they had not turned on monetization yet. Uh, there was uh, some money they were making selling graphics and fonts. They, but they said, uh, you know, this is going to be the biggest thing on the planet. And I remember just listening to their vision and could not stop being mesmerized by some of the things they told me. Um, and so my half hour meeting turned into three hours with them. Uh, and I missed my flight back to San Francisco. <laughs> that was the you know, probably most interesting thing. I was like, oh, crap, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss the flight. And they're like, oh, come stay with us and, and learn more. And so they invited me back the next day and then the following day. And I spent three days with them in Sydney Have you understanding product. Three straight days in diligence with a company before. Wasn't, no, it wasn't diligence. That's the thing. I, I wasn't. I wasn't. I wasn't planning investigating investing. the investment opportunity. I just like hanging out with them because they were thoughtful, smart, and their engineers and their and their product designers were some of the most interesting people on the planet, right? And a lot of them had come from Google in Australia, had helped build a lot of the the, the maps products in Australia, and they uh, they just you know was hungry. They were just super hungry for information. So that was just very, very interesting. And I had you know, spent 10 years of my life building product at Google, 15 years there. And it was one of these amazing things where we got to share knowledge with each other about how they saw the world, how I saw the world. And you know, I helped them figure out how to do hiring for product managers and engineers. And uh, at the end, they said, like, we'd love to find a way to work with you some more. And I was like, well, I don't know. I, it's hard for me to bring back a company with no revenue leading a Series A. And uh, the, the, the difficult thing about the deal was they made it very easy to say no, right? It was a romantically involved team. Uh, you know, Cliff and Mel were dating, which is a big no-no in venture capital. You never want to invest in teams where you know, the founders are, are romantically involved because if they fight, 
it's a disaster, right? right. Like the whole company has to deal with it. You know, risks in these businesses. Yeah. You don't need to introduce that. Yeah, they had not turned on monetization. They did, said, we love our company too much to give up a board seat right now at this time. So no board seat for you, no 20%. It was every rule in venture capital that I had the break to go get this deal done. And my partners, you know, they were supportive of it in the end. But at the beginning, when I said, I think I want to go do this deal with this, this, this team in Australia, they're like, you already did one. Don't do two. Like, that's a lot of risk for you to be doing more companies, you know, far away. And I said, there's something special about this. It reminds me of the old days of Google, the barefoot engineers, the people running around, the founders holding every Friday a big, you know, team meeting with the whole company in all hands, where they are absolutely transparent about the major decisions they want to make. Um, it was just absolutely fascinating. And I saw all these parallels from the old days of Google where, you know, when I joined, there was, a, you know, 100 people or so. And was the pushback from your partners in part because, well, now you have to be on a plane to Australia for multiple board meetings rather than just one company's board? No, I, I think the pushback is that it's when something goes wrong, the, the, back then, the traditional venture orthodoxy was you want to be able to, you know, bike to your company or at least drive there within 10 minutes of where you lived or where you worked, right? And the reason for that is you want to help out, you want to roll up your sleeves, you want to you know, help them hire. And, you know, I, I didn't have a competitive advantage in Australia. Um, I didn't know how to hire engineers. I couldn't hire product managers. I didn't know where the best schools were. Now, I was on a board in Australia, so I was going there anyways. Um, so my argument was I'm already doing one. Like, you know, two is a, two, why not two? Um, and to be fair, they supported this at the end. They were very supportive of wanting to go do this. But at the beginning, it was one of those things where, like, you know, it was kind of scratch your head. What are you doing for a second company? Yep. Um, and today, you know, that's probably one of the most legendary companies. The last round was done at 40 billion. You know, we love the Series A and the Series C. You know, we have a board seat today, which is great. And that's billion with a B, a private yeah, that's company. Yeah, billion with a B. I mean, in our position billion. is worth, you know, several billion, which is incredible, right? And a hundred million dollar fund that returns, you know, 20x plus. The fund, if not more, and, and one company just shows you how powerful this uh, power law business of venture capital is. And you know, Mel's, Mel says she's only one percent of the way there. I mean, for a founder that says I want to build a company that lasts multiple centuries and we're only one percent of the way there, she says my vision is to get every internet user on Canva. I want hundred percent of the internet on Canva. Today we have less than one percent, so I'm less than one percent of the way there. And for most people um, that are using it, they understand how critical need this tool is. The pandemic, you know, helped people share more, create more, design more. Half the decks that I'm getting now used to be created in PowerPoint or Dachshund, and now they're being sent to me in Canva because Canva has a, a, a share feature and the decks flow beautifully. You can do animations, you can do videos. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And so it's one of these things where I'm, I'm getting uh, all this distraction using it. I'm not even asking for it. And I don't think people are sending it to me because I'm on the board. People are sending it to me because it's the <laughs> easiest thing to use. So uh, I, I, you're seeing, I, the, uh, you're seeing the, 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 the growth of this company uh, worldwide. And they're at over a billion dollars of annualized revenue today. Billion of ARR. I've never seen anything like it. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. 
Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mentioned based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R.com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the Quarter team. Our thanks to Quarter. So I want to wind the clock back and imagine a different version of the universe. Imagine a parallel universe where COVID happened at the time you were meeting the company. So you weren't in Australia, you were doing meetings over Zoom. Do you think you would have ended up making the investment if it was just a Zoom call versus actually flying across the pond? Yeah, the, the answer would be no. I mean, I'll be, a, I'll be completely honest. It wasn't until I saw the company and was there and spent, you know, even the three, first three hour meeting was absolutely incredible, but you have to see their energy, their passion, you have to look them in the eye and going, why are you doing this? And it's really hard to do that over Zoom. I know we, everybody talks about like, oh, you know, I've like been able to do these, these 20 minute Zoom meetings and then, you know, t- two hours later there's a term sheet and there's something to be said for that. But I don't think anyone would have truly appreciated um, how amazing Canva was. The numbers, that weren't, the numbers weren't there to do the investment, right? Like I don't think any firm would have said these are like top of the top growth numbers for us to lean in. The, uh, you know, the issue with, with understanding, mail, mail presents really well, whether it's over video or whether it's uh, in person, but it, it, unless you see the company up front and you see how passionate, there's, there's two types of founders, um, and I've been lucky enough to invest in the first type, which is what I call the missionary founders, right? They sit there and they believe in what they're doing. They're purpose-driven. Their whole company is purpose-driven. I call them missionaries because everybody takes, the biggest sign of a missionary company is everybody's working for half the pay they would get at Google or Facebook, right? They so believe in the mission and the long-term optimization of getting wealthy and like changing the world, getting wealthy long-term and changing the world that they're all in. They'll work on seven days a week and they believe clearly that they're doing something that matters in their life. It's purposeful. And the easiest measurement of this is, you know, the, looking at the, uh, the regrettable attrition numbers. A lot of my companies that don't have mission-driven purposes or have missionary founders have northwards in this great resignation of 25 to 30% regrettable attrition. A third of the company's leaving now, especially in light of the pandemic where everybody sits there and goes, you know, I've been working at home. I've, you know, I've been stuck in this thing. I don't know if I want to be spending my time at this crazy company. And then you look at Canva and the regrettable attrition rate is under, you know, 2%. That's incredible. They're wow. one-tenth of like what the regrettable attrition of many of these companies, no one leaves. And that's because everybody is so excited about being there and working in a purpose-driven company that the only attrition are people that you know, don't fit the culture. And so they're, uh, the, you can just tell these sort of missionary founders. The other type of company are the mercenary companies, right? Where you have mercenary founders. Everybody's motivated by money or they're motivated by you know, whatever economics that they need. So they're optimizing for the short term. And those mercenary companies don't tend to do well for me. I tend to avoid them. And so that's like the one thing that, I've, that served me really well is spending time on investing in companies where there's truly a missionary founder and they're able to recruit a bunch of missionaries alongside to go on this journey with them to change the world. 
Yeah. I can't, by the way, that's a hard thing to tell over Zoom. Everybody would tell you that they're missionary, right? And that's exactly the, yeah, it's really interesting that we're in this business in venture capital of identifying outliers and betting on them. And, you know, it's the classic, you have to be non-consensus and right. And it's interesting now that we have this lower fidelity mechanism of evaluating companies over Zoom, it's probably harder to pick up if something is a four standard deviation yeah. type of founder it's, it's not lost norm. on me. I only did one or two deals over Zoom, right? Because I sit there and I'm going, I can't tell this is a four standard or five standard deviation company. And everybody else is chasing Zoom, right? I'm sending the market out a little bit right now because I just say, you know, I think at some point I'll be able to get on airplanes again and find the canvas. And I'd rather spend my time with uh, Cliff and Mel than with like some random enterprise software company where everybody's motivated by money, where everybody's chasing it. There's a old saying Charlie Munger sort of had is, uh, and Warren Buffett said this too, right? If you do what everybody else does, you get what everybody else gets. And I don't want, I'm, I want to be a venture capitalist that, you know, is one of these five standard deviations and I've been able to do it so far, right? I have 19 unicorns now because I find these founders that are just truly missionary driven and say, tell me with a straight face that where they're going to be the five standard deviation founder, they're changing the world and they believe in it and they're, they're building a baby. Their baby will, you know, grow up to be 200 years old. Like, it's very rare that you see a founder. Last time I saw this, you know, outside of Canva was with, like, um, Larry and Sergey, who said, I'm building a company to last a millennium, right? Like, I have a thousand-year plan. Cliff and Mel, same thing. I have a thousand-year plan. And you sit there, and it's truly incredible when you find founders that truly believe that rather than tell you that because they think you want to hear this. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, most of the companies that have become these great unicorns that are, you know, going to return multiples of the fund are founders that believe that they're going to build a company to last at least a century, right? And that's, that's one of the things I look for. So I'm going to pitch you my startup. Are you telling me I should not have an exit strategy slide in my deck? Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> there, are, there are VCs and probably, you know, I was at a conference in a room full of them that will be happy to see your exit strategy. I see that and I'm just like, oh, well, good luck. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I like the notion of a founder VC fit the same way that there's, that there's product market fit. Yeah, I mean, look, some of the most incredible companies I've had the privilege of investing in, Flexport, you know, the company's worth, you know, billions of dollars today. I was one of the first checks in that company. The founder literally told me, it's like, Wesley, don't invest in me if you want to click flip. I'm building something to last a couple centuries, right? I'm changing the world of freight and shipping. It's such a mess today. And he did it, right? Like, he's on the progress of doing this. Like, you know, half the companies we use are in Flexport today, if not more. You look at Gusto, right? Same, same thing with the founder. He's like, it's going to take me four years to even get any traction. If you're not in on this journey, don't join. And now they're worth northwards of 10 billion, right? Another, you know, massive multiple fund returner. And it's one of these things where you truly want these founders that are sitting there going, I'm going to change the world because I really, truly believe in my mission. And yeah. a lot of people will tell you this. I believe in the mission. This is great. And then you sort of ask them, well, how long do you exit? And they're like, oh, three years. I'm going to sell to Google. And you sit there and it's like, how do you have a mission if your like, goal is to sell to Google in three years? You know, Google's not going to support your mission. They're going to support themselves. And so uh, you know, the truly exceptional outcomes are from these companies uh, and founders that really truly have a group of people that are just in on mission, all in. And you know, we, we, uh, I'm an investor in CultureAmp, right, where they're the Google Analytics for employee happiness. And the happiest employees are ones, there's a very strong correlation between happiness and believing in the purpose of what you're doing. Purpose gives people happiness. It is one of those things where when you truly believe, it doesn't matter how low they're paying you, how little options they're making, it turns out you know, the best companies that are purpose-driven give lots of equity and very little salary, right? That's another interesting correlation. The founder's able to talk all these people in coming. In fact, when I joined Google, I, you know, I was a starting engineer, uh, you know, getting paid under, under 80,000 a year, which sounds like a lot of money for a fresh out of college, but today a starting engineer gets paid northwards of 200. 
And so, you know, we were getting this low pay, but we got lots of equity because Larry said, I don't want anyone to join me for the money. If you are here for the money, you don't belong. And so he filtered out everybody that was, you know, in it for the money or like needed to go do a bunch of things for the money up front. And like, you know, we didn't, we had no idea what the equity was worth because of the dot-com crash. But like there was, I still remember working seven days a week there with this amazing group of people who said, we're going to go change the world. And, you know, Google's a different company than today than what it was, you know, 20 years ago. But it was one of those things where I remember those first hundred people were all in on the mission. And, you know, that pattern recognition sort of survives and it's something I look for in the companies I work with today. So it sounds like you're, the, the, the dominant way that you evaluate whether you want to invest in a company is if the founder is obsessed with the mission. Do, where does the rubber need to meet the road for you in terms of will this market materialize? Because I can be really mission driven about selling, you know, number eight pencils. Uh, two dogs. I don't know, I'm trying to scope a market here pretty small here on stage. But like wh where, where does it get interesting to you where you're like, wow, Ben is really obsessed so, with that mission and Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the, the, the thing that really pushes me over the cliff to do the investment yep. is simple. You have clarity of vision. Like if you're selling pencils number, if you're selling pencils to dogs, right? What's your clarity of vision? I simply ask you, well, if you're going to be around for a century, you've got to make a profit. Like, what's your, what's, your, what's your vision for this? And you sit there like, well, you know, I'll just go into the Web Summit and market to dogs and hope I get something. That's not clarity. That's a dream, right? Yeah. And so if you, if you talk to Mel at Canva, her, her vision was absolutely clear. We're going to sit there and get into every school. It's going to take 10 plus years. We brought Guy Kawasaki on board who orchestrated, I mean, God, when I left college 20 some years ago, Windows had a 90% market share and Guy Kawasaki had orchestrated putting Macs in the, every school in the world. Like you, I grew up using Macs in high school and elementary school, even in college, right? MIT where I went to school was a lot of Macs because Guy had basically discounted the Macs or gave them away at cost to students. And we all said, this is great. This is easy to use, much more better than Windows. And despite that, I, I had a brief stint at Microsoft where there was an incredible amount of people using Windows had 90% market share, and today Macs have 90% market share because there's this long game, right, that Guy helped to orchestrate for Steve Jobs. And he's involved in Canva. It's in, every, in the hands of every school kid. This might be a 10-year journey, yep. but, you know, she had this clarity of vision. The culture amp founders, clarity of vision. Gusto, clarity of vision, right? We're going to do X, and if we do these following steps, it will work. And so the people, the founders who believe in the mission also, you know, have thought through this so much because every day and night they think they sit there dreaming about this. It keeps them up at night. And so they come and say, here are the steps. The steps may not be right. It might be completely different than what actually happens in reality, but they have a vision in their head that's very, very clear. The founders that don't, that say they have a mission or say they believe in a mission, but don't really believe in it, they haven't thought about it that much. They, they're telling me what I want to hear. That clarity of vision isn't there. Mm -hmm. And so if it is number two pencils, the dogs, fantastic. Just tell me what, what you're going to do to get there and I'll support it. And sometimes I'll make a bet on it. That sounds completely crazy, right? Like if you think about it, I've had a couple, I have a, I have a company called Overture Life, right? This is completely off the bet. This founder, Martin Verzowski, he's based out of Spain. Again, away off the beaten path. He's the, uh, he's the chairman of a, a prelude, which is the uh, largest chain of IVF. Um, Mm. IVF clinics, but he's creating a robot to do IVF. Sounds nuts, sounds totally science fiction, but he has a robot to automate a lot of the error, human errors that people have in IVF. And people pay tens of thousands, if not $50,000 plus to do IVF. And he says, I see the problem. Here's how I'm going to create the robot. Here's where the errors are. Here, you know, it turns out when you stick the needle into the embryo, do the genetic testing to make sure the embryo is viable and there's no genetic defects, that causes the embryo to split and creates twins. That's why there's so many outcomes of twins. He says, I have this way to look at the leaky DNA and reconstruct the DNA to figure out if there's any genetic defects. It's called cell-free DNA. I don't have to poke a needle in there and there's no risk of this splitting into twins. 
I mean, think about this, right? That one single step will eliminate this error that costs people all this money and have all these complications in terms of how IVF works. But he's simplified another 30 steps of it to remove this human error. And you sit there and you see this clarity of vision and you say, I got to get on board. And it's working. He's got a bunch of prototypes working. It sounds nuts, right? But this guy has such clear vision and he has such clear mission and he has built such a team that's willing to work for half the pay to follow him into this, this journey. It's nothing short of incredible. And those are the companies I love investing in. And to every other VC, it sounds like I have a crazy nut job who's pitching some science fiction, crazy wackadoo stuff. And I'm willing to say yes. And who knows? If it works out, I get another Canva. Well, the good news is we're in the business of, of saying yes when everyone yeah. else is saying no. So That makes it really fun. So, <laughs> yeah. That, Wesley. So, so I think the, the thing I'll leave everybody with, I don't care where the company is. India and China, I won't touch because there's some Wild West stuff going on there. And, you know, you don't want to look at the president the wrong way and have your company taken away. But everywhere else, wherever founders are, you know, and they have this crazy mission and this crazy vision, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a big fan and I'm more likely to say yes than not. So that's, you know, the, the secret of how we sort of do global investing, which ties back to our lovely theme. I love it. Thanks so much. Thank you. This has been fun. Thanks.